As we begin to dive into the next two to five years and we see a lot of these technologies coming forward, uh, you know, you're going to start to see not just our forces, but many other forces adopting virtual reality, augmented reality. We need to recognize that the threat space is also becoming morphable, on-demand, real-time, with actors that are not identifiable to us. So we need to have a different level of resilience, future readiness, and we need to have a more distributed, agile set of forces and sensing capabilities. Welcome back to another Modern War Institute podcast. I'm John Amble, Editorial Director at MWI. Captain Jake Moraldi will be back for our next episode, but today I'm going to share a discussion I had on the sidelines of a recent conference on robotics, artificial intelligence, and autonomy. The conference was organized by the U.S. Army's Mad Scientist Initiative, a program within the Army's Training and Doctrine Command, and hosted in cooperation with the Georgia Tech Research Institute. I had an opportunity to sit down with two fascinating people, U.S. Air Force Major Jen Snow and Dr. James Canton. As always, the views expressed in this podcast are those of the participants and don't represent the official position of any agency of the U.S. government. I'm here at the Mad Scientist Conference on Robotics, AI, and Autonomy, um, speaking with Dr. James Canton and Major Jen Snow. I'm going to have them introduce themselves. Dr. Canton. Yes, thanks for inviting me. Uh, I am CEO, Chairman, Chief Futures at the Institute for Global Futures. We're a San Francisco-based think tank that advises uh, startups, corporations, government, uh, defense, intelligence on what's coming next in the future, author of a couple of books, and uh, a chief disruptor in charge. That's, that's a title I think a lot would aspire to. And Major Snow? Hi, my name's Jen Snow. I work at Softworks and the Donovan Group for U.S. Special Operations Command, and we're doing some really exciting, innovative work uh, with self-regulating communities, so hackers, makers, DIYers, biohackers, teaming with them and figuring out what the innovation of the future looks like. Okay, great. So before we get into any specifics, can, can, um, can you both kind of maybe uh, together frame it for us? How should we be thinking about the future? Uh, what are going to be the key features, the drivers, the assumptions, um, the motivating factors that are really going to end limiting factors that are going to uh, really shape where we go? I think we need to start looking at the future as a capability set that is going to be made up of a couple of uh, elements. Now, I'm, I'm talking about technology, but of course you can't delink technology from uh, social, cultural, environmental, uh, economic, uh, uh, even geopolitical events, but we're going to talk about technologies, I think, right now. Uh, part of what's happening is everybody kind of looks in the rearview mirror about technology and thinks it's going to still be uh, the way it is today. So it's going to be a lot more connected. It's going to be a lot more morphable, downloadable. It's going to be more like uh, fabrics, clouds, uh, a lot more AI. Everything will be. And it, we need to think more. I'm on a mission to get people to think more convergently in terms of exponential convergence of things like nano, bio, IT, neuro, quantum. You know, what's the future of robots that, you know, walk, swim, think, talk, and then download and upgrade themselves? Uh, you know, I think we just need to think about more morphability, adaptability, and technology that will ev co-evolve with uh, humanity. You know, what's the future of post-genomic society when you've got robots that decide they're going to, you know, hack uh, DNA and then simulate that DNA to give themselves features 
that are going to address problems and challenges we as humans want them to fi figure out, or maybe challenges that we don't. I, mean, I forecast that AI, robotics, technology will help solve grand challenges, whether it's feeding the planet better, or it is solving climate change, or even ending or, or predicting conflict and ending it before it actually becomes kinetic. So we could be looking at a much smarter, uh, because of Moore's Law, cheaper, more portable uh, future of more connected technologies. And we need to think more convergently about how the future will roll out so we can kind of shape what we want. That's the big challenge. And that's it's a tough thing to do. You mentioned the prospect of ending a conflict before it goes kinetic, which is obviously, for, particularly for uh, members of audience that are in uniform, are going to find pretty compelling, um, maybe hopeful even. Uh, Major Snow, do you have anything that you want to add to kind of just the broad parameters of, of you know, when you think about the future and the and deep future, really, that are going to be kind of shaping the operating environment that we'll be working in? Definitely. So one of the big things that I'm seeing today is the fact that you have uh, what, what was referenced at Mad Scientist earlier, superpowered inv individuals. These self-regulating communities consist of individuals, small groups, uh, non-state actors that are able to take these technologies that have been incredibly downscaled, they're very affordable, and leverage them to create uh, both national and regional level effects. We haven't seen this before. Um, for the first time, you're actually seeing people able to talk to nation-state leaders. For the first time, we've had nation-states send ambassadors to tech companies or start talking with hacker and maker networks. And there's a reason behind that. We're moving from what has typically been a nation-state uh, driven system to nation-states that are now leveraging uh, networks, networks of technologies, but more importantly, networks driven by people that are, are innovators or that are leveraging these uh, convergent technologies. That's that's interesting. Um, Dr. Canton, you mentioned exponential convergence, I think you called it. I think anybody has an intuitive sense of what that is. Um, for example, when you pick up your phone and, and it's a lot more than just a phone now. Can you expand on that a little bit and also maybe talk about any potential vulnerabilities? I'm thinking specifically in terms of uh, blended reality. When human cognition and computers are sort of fused together further and further, does that open up new vulnerabilities? Yeah, I mean, it's, in some ways, it's already happening today. I mean, you look at uh, fake news. Uh, fake news is information warfare applied to civilian populations. Uh, we've had soft targets uh, in theater now uh, to destabilize uh, our, our military resources. Uh, well, now you've got, you've got an information global war going on between states, non-state actors, and all that. Uh, but just to pick up something that uh, Major Snow indicated, uh, she's absolutely right. We have a new phenomenon here. There's a whole new narrative, which is a lot of innovation now, in fact, most innovation, uh, is coming from outside of the traditional university, traditional defense establishment, traditional big companies. And you know, people don't realize that Moore's Law has created you know, cheap, fast tool sets and everything is moving now to the cloud. So, for, for instance, you know, I would envision that you know you're going to a cell phone which will be wearable will also have an a, a group of AI agents tied to it, and it'll be tied to the cloud. And now you've got the ability to be able to execute missions. So, in other words, a consumerization of technology, nanobio, IT, neuro, and eventually quantum, as deliverable assets in a liquid infrastructure that's global 
is going to change our thinking. And we're not ready for that yet. Yet that's what's emerging. And it's emerging in the hacker community. It's emerging in these you know, communities of like-minded folks around the world that are makers, creators. We need to be more in sync with that. You know, the, the, the message really, I think, is that there's other uh, innovation occurring with agility in organizations that we're not in touch with. And quite frankly, it should change us. It shouldn't be the other way around. So the kind of rigidity that we face, you know, that we see in the military and defense has got to, I think, uh, open up and become more morphable and, unreal, and realize that sources of innovation uh, don't require, you know, 10 committees and 10, you know, months and a large report. It may be happening tomorrow. It may be real time. And we need to be ready for those threats. So to answer your question about threats, we need to recognize that the threat space is also becoming morphable, on-demand, real-time, with actors that are not identifiable to us. So we need to have a different level of resilience, future readiness, and we need to have a more distributed, agile set of forces and sensing capabilities. And part of that is dealing with these communities that Major Snow was talking about, because we're not ready to deal with this threat. Uh, I refer to them as dark networks. You know, the criminal terrorist organizations, state and non-state actors. You know, it's the black hats. We're not. We're not ready. We're not equipped to deal with them. Uh, they're not. They're outside the fence. We need to get outside the fence. The only way to defeat a dark network is to become a dark network. Major Snow, we've seen um, most notably in our post-9/11 wars in Iraq and Afghanistan and smaller scale elsewhere. Um, Sort of the integration and augmentation of, of our military capabilities with and 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 of uh, different scholarly disciplines. Uh, anthropology speaks is is the obvious one with human terrain systems and and things of that nature. When you mentioned self-regulating communities, that seems like a very anthropological term um, for for those who have served in Iraq and Afghanistan. It's very um, sensible. It, it you just you see why anthropology matters. How how does this matter to our current and future military operations, and how will it increasingly matter? Sure. Um, what we're doing when you look at Donovan Group and Softworks, we're basically doing foreign internal defense, but we're doing technology foreign internal defense. We're not working off of specific requirements, but we're looking to the future and what some of these technologies, as employed by individuals or small groups, could potentially do on a battlefield. Um, Great case in point, because we sit outside the wire and we're an open source entity, anybody can come in. Uh, that means internationals can come in to us with, with concepts and projects. That means anyone in the U.S. can come in to us and say, hey, we've got this really cool idea. We think you guys should check it out. Um, one of the individuals that came to work with us brought a really cool drone hacking concept. And he brought that in and demoed it. And he said, hey, look, um, I worked under uh, President Obama's uh, security initiative for counter UAS and one of the, the things that I discovered was I could take these little $60 drones, put basic AI on them and uh, make them do a variety of autonomous tasks that would be very useful on the battlefield. Um, these are $60 drones that this gentleman is using in his garage, modifying them with basic AI in about 30 minutes of flight time. and can cause some serious security concerns for us. This is the type of innovation that we want to be able to talk to these groups about before they appear on the battlefield. And so part of the Softworks agenda and the Donovan Group agenda is to seek out these different groups and team with them where it makes sense 
for both battlefield operations as well as crisis response disaster recovery and see what different tech exists out there that folks are designing in their garage spaces, in private lab spaces, that we need to be aware of today so that when it shows up on the battlefield tomorrow, we're already prepared. I want to shift focus to something specific, and that's autonomy. Um, when we think of autonomy, we usually think of predators, reapers, um, unmanned aerial systems. We have, you know, maritime versions of that, you know, coming kind of um, coming to market, so to speak. Um, it seems natural. That's the most likely place for autonomy to see some some form of autonomy. But you know, from a military perspective, we think of our decisive action. Where would autonomy be, perhaps most decisive? Let me take a shot at, at, at autonomy. So, so just put. It, it, I spend most of my time in the private sector. That means small startups internationally and big companies and then private labs. What I notice is, um, just my perspective, mm -hmm. is that, um, so for instance, the, there's a there's a evolution towards maritime, right? Mm -hmm. The container industry, uh, if you want to move stuff around the world, right? So I, I can give you an economic metric for what's going to drive autonomy. You know, if you want to move 150, 200 containers around the world and speed and delivery is really important because everything that's on the water, uh, you know, you're between buyers and sellers. Uh, and, and I'm a foreign merchant banker, so I, I know the value of this. You know, so we're now moving towards a fleet of commercial containers that uh, fleets that are going that are going to be all autonomous. Why? You don't need, you know, worry about whether and most of the most of the problems that are associated with maritime traffic, commercial traffic, is accidents that are associated with humans. People are tired, people performance, you know, the system. When you go to a complete automated fleet, one, you don't need humans. Two, you, ha you can carry ultimately higher loads. And like what we're learning with self-driving cars, you know, you eliminate accidents, death, and more importantly, even for some people, there's a financial risk that's extensive mm -hmm. with accidents in the maritime commercial trade. So you start to eliminate those. So we're in the commercial world, we're moving towards that right now. And you're gonna see that migration. Now the question then becomes is, will we have, here I'll give you a forecast, you take a uh, country such as uh, New Zealand, or small, Japan certainly, Japan's gonna have an autonomous fleet of commercial and military. I would, same technology. You know, you put a, you put a rail gun on one and you know, at the end of the day, they can move containers, they don't need to move people. That's the whole point. Now, so so you're going to create a topology of maritime autonomy, airplane. You're going to have a space autonomy, the hostile environment space, near Earth orbit autonomy, and of course you're going to have cyberspace autonomy for a variety of things. Increasingly, our cell phones, our computers, our platforms, our networks are evolving, self-evolving autonomy. There's a lot of things humans can do. They don't have to. So this notion of one autonomy is going to steal our jobs, you know, from a robotics point of view, I don't buy. I just think we're going to increase the job sets for humans and robots in a co-evolutionary way. But autonomy is going to be a driver. Clearly, the biggest thing for defense is uh, autonomous uh, battalions, brigades, teams. We will have wars that are that are ended 
and started right. by AIs, all right? I mean, that, and autonomous uh, at the end of the day. But they have, a, they have a life cycle, okay? And that life cycle may mean, say, and no one's really talked about this, you have an autonomous, you have autonomy in a system that's virtual, physical, Android, uh, swimmable, but it has a life cycle. So that life cycle doesn't get renewed after a, pick, a deadline, and that's how we control it if we can't turn it off. There's ways we'll control autonomy, but I have been very critical of we need to control AI before AI controls us is an algorithm that I live by, but I think inevitably threat actors will embrace kind of sloppy autonomy and we will have to respond to that. We will be fight our AIs will be fighting AIs in cyber and physical spaces within five years. One of the, the things that we've looked at with regards to AI on the battlefield is instead of having to send a team in to, to a specific area, especially when you're dealing with dense urban environments, now perhaps I send an autonomous drone in and maybe they're trying to get eyes on somebody. Well, that drone can now go in in advance and I don't have to risk human lives and they can see if a person is actually there or not. That also reduces collateral damage. Um, having AIs active on the battlefield that's going to alleviate a lot of the logistics. That's going to alleviate a lot of the, the threat and security concerns. And it's also going to allow us to, to do some really neat uh, operations that we haven't been able to do before. Uh, getting in there with some of these AI drones or as Dr. Canton referenced, some of the AI that's active in cyber, uh, we can begin to shape the battlefield and shape it early and shape it fast. And another part of this, which is very important to the mission is uh, just to follow up on, on, on Major Snow's notion is a lot of our, our, as our mission changes, it's not all about, you know, uh, kinetics. It's also about development. I mean, we have a lot of friendlies that we could, you know, in terms of hearts and minds, we could install uh, AIs. I mean, we're getting the biggest breakthrough in our civilization right now from, you know, the oncology advisor. We're using it for medical diagnostics, right? Well, soon we'll be using it for treatment. So putting an AI, you know, robotic, that is somewhat telerobotic but also has autonomy in, you know, we, we, we could put them in 10,000 villages in Iraq, Pakistan. We could change the culture by bringing healthcare into these, into these communities. And guess what? You want to build goodwill. Mm -hmm. uh, you, you know, it doesn't have to all be about delivering lethality or kinetics or defense. It's about multi-use AI and robotics to be able to accomplish cultural things and be able to help pe people where we could never deploy and wouldn't want to deploy, uh, you know, humans, you know, human soldiers to, you know, do the kind of development work that a lot, quite frankly, are part of the missions today. So I just think it, it extends our portfolio of capabilities that are beyond just the traditional uh, defense uh, capabilities. And I think that that's actually going to get us, I would forecast, going to get us a much bigger bang for our buck in terms of interdicting, predicting, and, and ending conflict before it even starts. Imagine you got a lot of populations that are living, you know, in the 14th century, you know, in, in, in Pakistan, Afghanistan, throughout Africa, certainly Asia, the stunting and malnourishment of children and families, which is now you know, three, four generations old. 
we could change some of these dynamics with some of this. We've got to think bigger about the world. You want to end conflict, we could end up you know, ending conflicts by helping communities with basic things we take for granted for in the developed world. Well, that's the, some of the missions that I believe AI and, and robotics and androids could provide to us and give us a sense of sensing and intelligence and recon, as Major Snow said, that we need to think bigger about what we're going to do with these technologies. Autonomy is just not about, you know, weapon systems and, and monitoring and regulating kinetic activities. You talked about um, not just innovating, but innovating rapidly. And I think that's an important distinction. Major Snow, you talked about shaping operations and shaping the environment, um, which kind of brings to mind the quote that may have apocryphally been attributed to Lincoln about you know, if you want to predict the future, then create it. Um, how do we know if we're innovating rapidly enough? What are the metrics? Um, what are the what are the measures? How do we know what it, what does success look like? So, what what we're doing at Softworks right now and with the Donovan Group is is exactly that. We're trying to get out in front of these new technologies that are emerging uh, and figure out. Uh, how do we enable the technology to move forward in such a way that it's beneficial for society and we're not halting innovation, but at the same time work with these different communities to figure out what the threat vectors are and how we can prevent those threat vectors from being used. Um, Softworks, by bringing in these different communities and hosting them on site, we're able to team with a variety of people that have access, expertise, and capacity to technologies that we don't in the government. We just don't. We're not part of those communities. Uh, and it, it makes sense for us not to be part of some of these communities. It's just not our role. Um, but by bringing them in, they can actually consult with us and advise us on what the future of policy looks like. What should we be doing regulation-wise? And then where does it make sense to actually use these technologies both in foreign internal defense, uh, humanitarian, crisis support, and on the battlefield? Uh, and what should that look like? And that, all of that together, we then toss over the fence to our ops brethren and say, here's the tools that we have for you today. Start shaping what tomorrow looks like. That's, what we're, that's where we need to be. And that's what Softworks and Donovan is doing now. Yes, just to add to that, uh, I'm, I'm advising and working with Softworks in the early stages for that very reason. I think Softworks, to ask you, answer your question, what, uh, you know, what, the, what the metric is, is adoption. You know, can you solve uh, mission challenges uh, with better tools that maybe are agile, right? And, and again, you know, the threat actors, nation states, uh, is Russia and, and uh, China doing this? Uh, and non-state Iran doing it. Yeah, they're, they're, they're integrating distributed networks of folks and then leveraging innovations. And quite frankly, we need to be doing more of that. I think that Softworks is, you know, kind of the future of what the forces should be doing, quite frankly, not just, you know, tip of the spear, but tip of the innovation spear. That's why I think Softworks is a platform to be able to experiment and kind of reach out and find pockets of innovation that you know we would never know about it's a more than a listening post it's like a you know being able to grapple with greater agility how do you do that well reach out to a larger population i call them edge cultures there's a lot of edge cultures we don't know about by the way they're they may be way off the grid they may be outside of the u.s it may be any place i just think that softworks represents kind of a a future looking 
agile platform that is not just for you know SOCOM, it's really a model for what we should all be doing in the forces to better think about how to be able to integrate new solutions with agility. And it, to your to your question as well, with met, with regards to metrics, it's very hard to capture metrics for these technologies. Uh, not only are they moving incredibly fast, but we don't have requirements for them because some of them are just being born today. Uh, if you look at additive manufacturing, for example, that technology has increased 100,000-fold in about 18 months. It's moving incredibly fast. So if you're trying to apply static metrics to measure some of these capabilities, it's not effective. Uh, and I think we hamstring ourselves if we do that because we limit our perspective by saying, oh, we've got to measure it this way. Well, that's the other reason Softworks is not working off of, nor is Donovan Group working off of specific requirements per se, but we're looking to the future. We don't want to be bounded. We want to be able to get out there and look at everything that's available, everything that's happening, and then bring that back to the command to share. But the, the fast-moving areas such as uh, biohacking, AI, analytics, robotics, uh, and other stuff we'll find as we go. I think the idea, I think, is that, gee, we'd, we'd love lots of folks to embrace those areas too. I mean, look, it's a big world. There's a lot of innovation going on. I think this is a model for the future. I want to kind of uh, ask a question that might be a little bit uncomfortable because typically when you're talking about the future, especially the deep future, you're talking about patterns and trends and trying to make sense of data. Um, I'm not going to ask you to kind of specify a particular point in time, but if you imagine uh, the tactical warfighter in, in, in some future scenario, what are some of the things that are going to look fundamentally different to his combat experience uh, compared to what, what, what they experience today? As we begin to dive into the next two to five years and we see a lot of these technologies coming forward, uh, you know, you're going to start to see not just our forces, but many other forces adopting virtual reality, augmented reality. You're going to see the use of drones and even autonomous drones in some cases for resupply or for search and rescue or to remove folks from the battlefield uh, when they're injured. You're going to start to see um, some really interesting developments in the 3D printing field. And 3D printing, in fact, is, is changing a lot of different spaces, uh, industry, military, uh, the nuclear space, of course. Uh, Sellafield was big in the news as far as how they're using 3D printing to uh, deal with some of the parts and pieces that are no longer being manufactured. But that's created a new type of revolution where now you're seeing the ability to 3D print nuclear components that perhaps took months and uh, you know multiple manufacturing lines to make and you can now make them in about four or five hours in a garage um, what does that look like you know how how do we detect if somebody is using these for nefarious purposes or if they're actually using them for good uh, so how we look at the battlefield is going to change. The technologies that we're carrying onto the battlefield with us will change. Uh, we had some really innovative folks come to us a few weeks back that uh, have some unique ARVR concepts for our canine forces. That's cool. I hadn't thought about that, you know. Um, we've got folks that are coming in that are doing incredible things with the Internet of Things. Uh, what does an Internet of Things system look like when it's deployed from a drone that's going into a disaster area and it's dropping little IoT devices around to build a scalable mesh network for folks to actually call out for help or to guide first responders in on? 
these are the types of changes that um, by embedding with these communities and by doing this innovative work now, we're ready for and we can start to deploy in the next couple years. We don't have to wait. We can begin to get this into the hands of the warfighter today. And I really think this is going to accelerate our effectiveness on the battlefield, also keep our warfighters safer. Something else to think about is, you know, as military members, we're used to going forward with our military team. But I really think in the future, if we're doing this smartly, we're not going to just have our military team, but we're also going to be augmented by civilian teams. Hackers and makers are going to be providing reachback support, or maybe they already sit in countries that we're hoping to influence, and we're teaming with them via cyber. And we're talking to them about, hey, you know, we have a downed airman over here. Can you help identify that person, find them, and get them to safety? Um, these networks, they already exist, and there are a lot of really good people out there in these communities that want to make a difference. They're making a difference every day. I know because they're walking through our front doors and they're showing us the cool stuff that they're doing. Um, I think in the future, if we don't include these, these citizens as part of our team, we're missing out. We're missing out on an incredible enabling component uh, and the ability to do a lot of good when we're out there in the field. Yeah, so this is the future of uh, MISO, the future of, uh, we need a whole new kind of data science meets, you know, next-gen community development. Uh, but, but let me say, and I couldn't agree more, uh, you know, there's more cell phones on the planet today than there are people. Today, right? So seven point, that means there's probably close to eight billion cell phones on the planet today. So when you look forward, I mean, we're not talking about ten years, we're talking within three to five years. So the notion that the entire planet is going to be, I call it, you know, the connected planet. It's all going to be connected. You know, well before we get, we could, we could actually enable IoT, Internet of Things, and, and as Major Snow indicated in terms of dropping sensors and dropping, you know, uh, drones into environments and creating our own networks. So just in a world where you've got 8 billion people that are all connected, there's going to be a large portion of them that are oppressed by the very adversaries that we have conflicts with, you know, you could change the entire dynamic of conflict on the planet with this kind of aware, you know, networking between us and citizens. And we should go after that. I mean, we're way beyond dropping pamphlets and, you know, and taking ads out and doing, you know, mobile, even mobile advertising. You're talking about a different world to support the, 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 the warfighter it may be the enabler. We maybe have to change that name. It could be the conflict resolver. You're talking about changing the very nature of war. And this is something that we've been working with the World Economic Forum on. Uh, they reached out to us, uh, the International Security Council, and said, hey, we're looking at fourth industrial revolution. Tell us about these self-regulating communities and how we might begin to get them involved in a concept of global governance. What does that look like? If we have a crisis situation, how can we team with them to help solve that crisis situation? What are the strengths, the expertise, the tech that they can bring into play that may help us resolve that faster and save lives? So there's some really exciting uh, evolutions that are occurring with these particular groups right now and at a global level. And the fact that they're coming forward and they're willing to have these discussions and they want to make a difference is, uh, I, I'm really excited about it. I think it's pretty cool. I think that's what makes med scientists great, you know, is that we're here with different researchers, scientists, exactly. PhDs, military folks saying, okay, you know, what does the future look like? It's not just about, you know, robotics, AI, and other technologies. It's also about what's going to change in terms of governance, what's going to change 
in terms of geopolitics. You know, we're living in a complex, interconnected world of accelerating changes, and it's exciting. But uh, at the end of the day, we may be talking about changing fundamental things, like we're changing, uh, you know, you notice certain generations are not driving cars, they're leasing you know, a drive-by car or using Uber. They don't think about, they're not a car culture in that, but they're using it. We have other folks that think about conflict differently. It may be about a variety of things that we're still trying to figure out. I just think we're in a very dynamic, exciting time of which the nature of conflict is going to be shifting, and we need to be ready to shift with it, with innovations that will empower people. Yeah, you're exactly right about that. Uh, so what Dr. Kant said about mad scientists, forums like this are key to moving us forward and making sure we're getting to the right place all together. It's not about being stovepiped or, or separate services anymore. This is about the bigger discussion, where the technology is going, what we should be doing about it, and who are the right groups or people that we need to be teaming with. So I love forums like this. This is exactly what we need more of. It, I'm not uh, throwing out the baby with the bathwater. Is there a role for uh, a certain kind of uh, uh, traditional role doctrine and uh, force? Uh, there is, but that's got to change and adapt to the needs of a changing world. And we've been doing that, but I, I think, quite frankly, we need to do it with more agility, more innovation, more experimentation to keep pace with a shifting world, whether it's megacities or you know, climate change or the emergence of these other communities where there's innovation outside the grid. Well, we need to be agile enough to be able to embrace this uh, or I fear that we'll be uh, put at a disadvantage, increased vulnerability by not being what I call future, future ready. We've got to get future ready. More learning, faster learning with diverse folks that are outside of our world and understand how to adapt and embrace prediction. And the only way to do that is to start to, I think, think differently about all of this. Dr. James Canton, Major Jen Snow, thank you very much. Thanks for listening to the MWI podcast. Remember to subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, or your favorite podcast app. You should also check out the MWI website, mwi.usma.edu, to see new articles we publish every day. You can also find us on Facebook and Twitter, at War Institute. And again, special thanks to Tradox Mad Scientist Initiative. You can check them out on Twitter, at ArmyMadSci, and check out their page on the All Partners Access Network to get more info about their upcoming conferences, calls for papers, and more.